Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 2. We're actually in chapter 2. We finished chapter 1. Yay! That's quite an, uh, an achievement, isn't it, Jim? Slow down, he tells me. Uh, Aaron, can we turn these fans on, please? I think just to move the air around a little bit. John chapter 2, the Gospel of John as opposed to the epistles of John, right? And the epistles of John are right before the book of Jude and the book of Revelation. And someday, maybe we finish the Gospel of John, maybe we'll go and study the epistles of John. That would be kind of cool, too. The Gospel of John, uh, found in the New Testament, obviously, 27 books. We're going to go through this quickly. 5.21.1. History. What's next? Letters. And then? Prophecy. Whoa, you got that. Or at least one of you did. Uh, the books of history are? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. That's easy enough. The first section of the letters. We've got five names to remember. The first section of the letters are, anybody know the code word? R.C. Gap, right. And what does that stand for? Wow, there's two or three. I noticed you weren't saying anything up here. Okay. Romans, Corinthians. Let's say this together. Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. That's good. You got the whole first section there. The Gospel of John written. Why? So that we would believe. That's really what the gospel was written for, so that we would have faith, that we would trust that Jesus is the Christ, He's the Messiah, He is the Son of God, He is God the Son, and that by believing we would have life. He changes our lives, He gives us life, true life. Last time we talked about following Jesus, and we've been talking about that for a few, few weeks, and and really the idea of, of following Jesus, why would we follow anyone? Why would we follow Jesus? Big reason here, a lot of big reasons, because he is God, because he is good, because he is the way, he knows the way, he is Savior, he is Lord, and he gave his life for us. And thinking about this, again, just a little review about what it means to follow him, it means to walk the same road as him, with him. It means to trust Him. It means to listen to Him. And it means to obey Him. To follow Jesus means all those different things. And, and the thing is, if we truly, truly believe in Him, we will follow Him. We will follow Him. Now, John chapter 2, we kind of changed uh, you know, gears a little bit, and we're going to look at, at, at a wedding. You know, and I, I love weddings. Any of you love weddings? You like going to weddings? Especially if you... No, Jim doesn't like it. He's really giving me a hard time today. Do you notice that? I love weddings. And, and, and we're, we're going to look at this today in John chapter 2, that Jesus went to the wedding. In, in fact, his first miraculous sign was performed at a wedding. 
at this particular wedding. And so we'll, let's have a look at that and, and see what happens there because it's very fascinating, interesting, a lot of different subjects, a lot of different things that come into play here. And when we study God's Word, we look at God's Word, and God can speak to you in lots of different ways, obviously. And, and you know, for, for each one of us, it might be a different point. It might be something that stands out in the words that we uh, read, the words that we hear. John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. They were all there. All of them were there, and it's interesting. We're not sure of all the connections, how this kind of came about. You know, we do know John chapter 21 tells us that Nathaniel, who was, we heard about him in chapter 1, right? He was from the town of Cana. So perhaps there was this connection. We don't really know. How did, how did Jesus' mother end up there? We don't really know. But Jesus and his disciples were all there. It says that they were invited. And, and it makes me think, too, these connections. You know, it's, you know, Israel, the land of Israel is not a very large place, right? And there's more people now and it's not very large, but it's like, it's like Rhode Island. You know, it's like these connections within Rhode Island. You know, everybody knows somebody. Wow, it's a small world. And anyways, they were all there, but, but what, what stands out to me in this first, these first couple of verses is that Jesus was invited. He wasn't a wedding crasher, right? He was invited. He, he got invited to that wedding. His disciples, they were invited too. And, you know, they ended up going there. Maybe that was part of the following, that they were following him to this wedding. And I, but but this, this idea that Jesus was invited, I think, I want to stop there for a minute or a minute or two, that, and, and, because this is big. It's important to invite Jesus. They invited him to their wedding. And he ends up doing an incredible thing there, right? He does his first miraculous sign at their wedding but they they invited him there if they had never invited him there guess what it never would have happened he he, he i doubt he would have showed up just without having invitation i think back you know we got married 40 years ago i'm speaking about me and my wife who's in the other with the kids this morning so she's not here we got married 40 years ago and we invited him to our wedding we invited Jesus to our wedding. You say, well, that's kind of weird. No, it's not. It's absolutely important. It's crucial. It's, it's essential. So I want to ask you, maybe you're married and, and, or, or, or you were married some time ago. Did you invite him to your wedding? Did you invite him into your marriage? You know, it, it, it doesn't just stop. And I think that's you know, the, this whole idea of a, of a wedding is, 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 is wonderful. Like I said, I love to go to weddings, but that's just the beginning, right? It doesn't end there. Well, for some it does, I guess. But that's just the beginning. That's really when life together, you know, starts, and then it kind of goes from there. When we do uh, premarital counseling, we always, on the very, very first, and, and then through it, and then at the end, we always... Uh, talk about this fact that, that you need Jesus in your lives. 
You need the Lord Jesus in your marriage. You need him to help you. There's a verse in Matthew, it says this, Jesus looked at them and he said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now in that context he's talking about what? Does anybody remember? He's talking about a rich man getting into heaven, right? He says easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man. And then they said, well, wow, then none of us are going to make it if like, it's that hard to get into heaven. And, but, but when I think about there's a principle there, too, that there are certain things that are very, very difficult for us to do by ourselves. And I think marriage is one of those things, honestly. And, and I think we need to have Jesus in the middle. I, I, I say this, and I've been saying it probably, you know, from the beginning, without Jesus in our marriage, I don't know that we would have survived. You know, my wife is hard to... <laughs> I'm hard to live with. There you go. She's not here to defend herself. So. Marriage is difficult, Okay. And, and you have two people, you know, that, you know, we're all stubborn, we're all proud, we're all, you know, individuals, we all have our own issues, we all have our own baggage, we all have all this stuff. We need Jesus. And we always go back to Ephesians, uh, excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, where it talks about having a threefold cord, Right? talks about, you know, two are better than one, and then it gets at the end of that little section and talks about a threefold cord. So two is good, but three is even better. And I believe that is the Lord being a part of that cord, that cord to keep it strong. But even there it's difficult because it says a threefold cord is not easily broken. I've seen it break, too, even with, with true believers. It's difficult. Marriage is difficult. We need him there. One, one man said this. He says it was a wise decision to invite Christ. So it is still a wise decision when people today invite the Lord to their marriage. In, in order to do this, both bride and groom must be true believers in the Lord Jesus. They must give their lives to the Savior and determine that their home will be a place where he loves to be. I like that. Let me say that last line again. They determine that their home will be a place where he loves to be, that is Jesus. That's awesome. That's, that's for us, for, to invite him there. You know, uh, I looked this up, this information, and, and the average cost uh, for a wedding in the U.S. Anybody know what that number is? The average cost is 33000 depending on where you live, though. Because in New Mexico, it's eighteen. In New York City, it's $77,000. Can you believe that? Where does Rhode Island fit in? It's up near the top, $53,000. That's like, that's like a down payment on a house or something. That's like a really nice car. You know, that's like a whole recording studio. That's like a lot of money. What are you going to do with $53,000? Now, we do need to get, you know, we do need to have this ceremony. I believe it's important, and, and to do what you need to do, I think there's ways we can be a little bit, uh, you know, uh, less extravagant, perhaps. 
But, but we can spend all this money and all this planning and then leave Jesus out of it. That's a tragedy. That's a disaster. That's a recipe for disaster. Why do I say that? Because Jesus being one of, of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you look back to Genesis chapter 1, you know, it says that, you know, they were there, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they were there and, and creating. You can see the, the, the Trinity there. And in Genesis chapter 2, they are the ones that created marriage. They're the ones that came up with the idea. That's why we can't really mess around with it. And, and our society, you know, wants to change the definition of it and, and change, uh, you know, what it means. We need to see how God set it up. What did God design? It, it goes all the way back to the beginning. Uh, if, if you want to use this language, it's the first institution that God created. Now, some of you say, I understand that word institution, and that's not the right word. But institution, it just means some kind of a formal structure. He set it up, so to leave him out of it is, it, you know, we do that to our own damage, to our own hurt. Another thing I want to point out for the husbands is that Jesus is the example of what a husband should be and do in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wife, wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So how could we ever just leave him out of it, you see? So anyways, they were here and we're here at Cana and they invited Jesus to the wedding. They invited his disciples and, and it was just a wonderful time to be together, to have Jesus there. Incredible. The story goes on. Let's, let's continue verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now this was a problem. You see, uh, and, and you can study about, you know, the, the, what the weddings and, and they were like back then. And some uh, say that they would, they would go on for like a week. I mean, this was like a celebration. Ours goes on, you know, our, you know, the weddings we do are, you know, what, four or five hours maybe. Something like that depends. But, but to run out of wine was to fail in hospitality. They were, they were failing and, and this was a very serious offense. It was embarrassing. And so, the, you know, Jesus was there. Mary sees this and says to Jesus, they have no more wine. Now, you know, whatever your you know, views are about... Uh, can you put that back on the screen for me? It's not functioning. There we go, actually, right here. Mary shows us a lot of different things. And, you know, we, we live in a, a state where, you know, we're the lot, I think there's a lot of confusion about who Mary is and, and how we should relate to her. And I think here in the Gospel of John, there are a couple of interesting, even in this chapter 2 here especially, a couple of interesting things about her. Notice where she brings the problem. She brings the problem where? To Jesus. That's what she did. She didn't say, I'll take care of it, right? She said, you got to go to the right place. The right place is Jesus, and that's where she went. She shows by her example that that's what you and I should do. 
She presented the problem to Jesus. She, she brought it to him. And that's what you and I should do. Whatever the problem is, whether it's a small problem, whether it's a large problem, you see, because he is the one. As I quoted that verse, nothing is impossible with him. And so she brings this problem to him and, and presents the problem to Jesus. Verse 4, his response, again, some of the, some of the way we read these words today might uh, you know, be confusing to us. In verse, verse 4 it says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? And Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. So you kind of look at that and go like, you know, she brings a problem to him and he kind of, he kind of says, you know, what, you know, why are you bothering me? And, and some of your versions just say woman, right? It says woman. And that's the kind of way we hear it. This version of the NIV adds the little, uh, you know, the word dear on there, dear woman. So kind of giving us the idea and explaining that it really was a, a term of respect and, and it wasn't, you know, like a, a, a negative way he was saying that word woman. He uses the same word when he's on the cross. And he looks down and he, and he talks to John and he talks to his mother and he says, you know, John, you, you know, take care of her more or less of what he's saying. And, and you know, he, he says, woman, you know, here's your, your son. He's going to take care of you. But he answers kind of strangely. He says, why do you involve me? And why would she come to him with that? Now, he hasn't done any miraculous signs yet. This is the first miraculous sign that he has performed. There are some, uh, you know, they call them uh, false writings, false gospels that are not accepted as being truly uh, inspired by God. And some of them say, you know, Jesus was doing this, you know, he was young and he was doing this miracle and that miracle and that kind of thing. But, but John tells us here that this is the very first thing. So why would she go to him? Well, there, you know, maybe there's something about a mom who knows that, hey, you know, Jesus, my, this son is different. There's something about him. We read about that, you know, she treasures these things in her heart. She, she sees these things that Jesus does and says and goes, wow. But it says she treasured them up in her heart. So she knew there was something about him. And so she brings this problem to him and he says, you know, why are you, you know, why, why are you doing this? I think it was because she knew that she couldn't do anything, but he could. She didn't know what he would do. She didn't know how this was going to play out. She had no way to know what Jesus was going to do in the situation. That's kind of true in our lives, too. Sometimes we face problems and trials, and we, we bring them to him, and then we tell him how we want him to work it out, right? True? Is that true? Oh, Jesus, I got this really bad problem at work with this guy. And so can you, uh, you know, help me out and like get him fired and out of there? And we tell Jesus how we want it to play out. Well, she didn't necessarily do that. But, but you know, you and I need to be careful and, and, and be kind of like humbling ourselves. Look, I've got this huge problem. I don't know what to do. I'm bringing it to you and however you want to work it out. And however you want to change me. Often we have a problem with somebody else and we want God to change them, but, but so often he wants to change us. 
as we bring it to him. He works in the whole situation, of course. But she knew, anyways, she knew that she couldn't do anything about this. She knew it was embarrassing. She knew it was a very serious offense. But she brought it to Jesus, I think, believing that something would happen. Now, he, he says it like that, but he, he, he wasn't saying, don't bother me. Would Jesus ever say that? Jesus would never say, don't bother me. Sometimes I hear people say, that, well, you know, I didn't want to pray about that because I didn't want to bother him. Like, that's stupid. That's just ridiculous. I don't want to bother him. When he's saying to me, he's saying to you, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, come unto me, bring your problems to me, come to me, talk to me. And notice, if you know the rest of the story, you've read this, you've heard about it, we already have been talking about it. He didn't say no, did he? He didn't say, no, I want, I'm not going to do anything. And he actually does do something about it. But he points this out at the, at the last part of this verse. He says, my time has not yet come. And, and you say, well, what? I don't know what you're talking about. My time to help you out here. My time to change the water and wine. You know, what, what is that all about? As we get to know him more and more, what was he talking about? He was talking about the cross. Really, you see, Jesus came and did a lot of things, but they all kind of funneled down to this one thing. And that one thing was the cross. He says, my time has not yet come. At the end of his life, when the cross was imminent, he says, my time has now come. And this is what I came to do. He came to die on the cross for our sins. See, the biggest problem we have is not the fact that we're not being hospitable. The biggest problem we have is not the fact that we don't like somebody at work. The biggest problem is that you and I are sin. We're sinners. We're sinful. And without that sin paid for, we are headed for an eternity apart from God. That's our biggest problem. Sin and death are our biggest problems. And you see, Jesus came to deal with those. He came to die on the cross for our sin. And he came to be resurrected from the dead to conquer death. That's what he came to do. Now, does that mean that he's not going to help us in anything else? That's all, you know, just, just believe, become a believer, and you're going to go to heaven. And no, no, he, he, the Bible is full of, of asking us to come to him. The book of Hebrews talks about it. You know, come to him, the one who has, has got grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. So he's there for you. He's there for me. But keep in mind, the most important thing is that he wants to forgive us and cleanse us of our sins. Uh, you know, the, the uh, time that there were some men, they brought a man to Jesus, right? And he was paralyzed and, and he was laying on a bed. And, and the first thing that Jesus said to him, I might have this mixed up with a guy that came, another guy that came, but, but, but the first thing he said anyways was, your sins are forgiven, right? And he said, well, uh, you know, but I, you know, I have a physical need. But the first thing he did is, this is what I came to do is to forgive you. And that's what he wants to do for every one of us, to forgive us, to cleanse us. But then he went ahead and healed the guy too. See, see, he doesn't just stop there. And, and he wants to work 
in our lives in lots of different ways. Let's carry on so we can uh, get to the end of these verses here. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. I think, that, I think those words are the heart of this passage. Do whatever he tells you. Uh, someone pointed this out that, that these are the last recorded words of Mary. Well, that doesn't kind of add up with some of the stuff I've been you know, told and taught or whatever. This is what Mary says. Mary says, don't look to me. Go to him and do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you. And, and we're all servants, aren't we? We're all servants of, of Jesus. And I think that's good advice, to do whatever he tells you. Jesus said it himself in John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, what? You will obey what I command. If you love me, if you truly are following me. So Jesus is saying to you and I today, follow me, do what I say. Mary said to them, to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, you have to think about this. To, to, to tell someone just to do whatever he tells you to do, that's asking a lot, isn't it? Why? Why do we have trouble doing what someone else tells us to do? Pride, yeah. Trust. You know, it starts at a very young age. You don't have to teach a child to say these words. You know what the words are. You are not the boss of me. Right? I, I, I think it happens. It starts happening with, between the kids, you know. You know, the older kids, you know, telling the younger one what to do. And, then, you know, the younger one says, you're not the boss of me. Who put you in charge? But then... There comes a point, too, where they start saying it or at least thinking it about their parents, right? You're not the boss of me. And dad says, really? <laughs> Let's step outside. I'll show you who's the boss. <laughs> you know, for us to humble ourselves, to have some measure of submission, to learn to submit to authority, to learn to submit to someone over us, to listen, it, it does take uh, you know, a, a change of our hearts to say, okay, whatever you want me to do, I will do. I will do whatever you want me to do. This is what Mary is telling the servants, I think, and it's good advice for you and I today. Verses 6 and 7, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews at uh, for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Now, these jars were for ceremonial washing, right? In other words, if you did anything according to the law that would make you unclean, uh, you know, you would need to go through some kind of a ceremonial washing. Wash your hands at least, you know, if you, uh, you know, did this or that. And you can read about all this in the, 
first five books of the law. But, but it's interesting to think they were there, and it appears anyways that these six stone jars, they were empty. It appears that way, doesn't it? He says, go fill them up. But they were empty, and, and it, 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 you know, this picture of them being empty, kind of like, you know, it, even in terms of following the law and doing what the Bible says to do, they weren't there. there. There was no water there. So what if something had happened? They had no way of, of doing what they were supposed to do. They weren't prepared in any way. Maybe that's how they ran out of wine in the first place, right? Sometimes we're not really very prepared. We're not thinking ahead. We're not thinking of what might or what could happen. But, but this idea of the fact that, the, that it was just they were empty. And I, and, I, and I think that's so true of life today, too, that so many times, you know, we're just empty and we need to be filled. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. But notice this, too. Jesus, you know, she brought the problem to him. She said, do whatever he tells you. What does he tell them to do? He says, fill the jars with water. He looks around, and what does he see? He sees these stick, uh, six jars uh, sitting there, right? And, and, and then he asks these guys, these servants, I, I'm not sure if they were all guys, but these servants anyways, to fill them. So, first of all, he uses what was close by, right? And second, he involves the people that were there. For Jesus to do something miraculous, I think, it, you know, I think it's true too. He uses you and I to, to, to be involved in what he's going to do. He, he may want to use you in a way and say, well, Jesus, do something. He says, well, okay, but this is what I want you to do to get Involved in making this thing happen. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. You, you're praying for peace. Well, maybe he wants to make you and I into to a peacemaker. But you think about some of the other instances in the scripture too, right? The feeding of the 5,000, right? Did he just do it all? Did Jesus just feed those 5,000? Think about what happened. There was a little boy, right? He had, you know, what? Five loaves of bread and two fish. Did I get that right? He offered what he had. Somebody said, hey, there's a little boy here, he's got that. Okay, we're going to use that. And then what happened? Who else got involved? The disciples, he says, I want you. Jesus prayed and he began to break. And, and, and he says, I want you now to begin to hand that stuff out. And so he got them all involved in it, right? Jesus did a miraculous thing, but he used people. He used what, what was at hand. The man that was born blind. He put some like mud on his eyes, right? And then what? He told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. There was something that he had to do. There was a part that he had to play. What about Lazarus? John chapter 11, what happened in his life? Did anybody get involved in that? Anybody remember? Huh? His sisters, yeah, they were sort of involved. 
he asked them to believe. He wanted them to believe and trust. But there were some others that actually did something. What did, he, what did he ask them to do? Roll away the stone, right? Roll away the stone. They had to physically do it. He didn't do it. He could have snapped his fingers and rolled that away, right? But, but he said, I want you to roll away the stone. But, but what did they do? What did they say? Oh, wait a minute. You know, he's been in there four days. It's going to smell really bad. But they went ahead and did it anyways. And Jesus called forth Lazarus, come forth, come out. And sure enough, he did. The point being is that he wants to use you and me. We pray for miracles and, and then he wants to use us. And we say, wait, no, I wanted you to do something. Don't, you know, uh, you know, why are you asking me to, you know, get involved? Notice what they did. They filled them to the brim. It says they filled them to the brim. Did they understand what they were doing at that point in time? I don't think so. But they obeyed him. They obeyed obedience. Again, what we said in the very beginning, what are the, one, of the, one of the things of following Jesus means to obey, to be obedient, to do what he says. That's what Mary said as well. Verse 8. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. He said, now draw some out and take it to the master. Now did they understand what was going on then? either. Do whatever he tells you. That's what Mary said. And Jesus told them, now fill the, fill the jars. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now there was kind of a little bit of a risk there, wasn't there? You know, what if it was just water? I'm, you know, I know what's in that bucket. I just poured the water in there and you want me to, you know, spoon it out now and take it over? Like, there was some risk involved. Look at verse 9. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside. And he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine. After the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. It says that the water had been turned into wine. It doesn't say exactly when the water was turned into wine. When did it, when did it happen? When exactly did it happen? We don't know for sure, but did it, did it happen when they were you know, obeying, when they were scooping it out and then it turned into wine right there as they were being obedient to what he had to say? When are those miracles in our lives going to happen? When we begin to obey and do what he asks us to do? I don't know. I'm just throwing that out for us here. The master of the banquet, he tasted the water that had been turned into wine. This, this miraculous sign had occurred. Now you say... Now, some of you are thinking, and you've probably been thinking about this all along, is he going to talk about the wine? Well, that's not the main point here. The main point isn't wine. It isn't about, you know, wine. It isn't about drinking. Jesus turned the water into wine. That's what it says. That's what happened. Okay? There weren't many choices back then, right? 
Now, I'm just going to say a few, a few points here on this. Uh, the alcohol content was lower than, most likely. But the fact of the matter is it was still wine. And the Bible, the Bible, let me say this, the Bible doesn't ban the use of wine. Okay? But it does have a lot to say about getting drunk. Ephesians, Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery or all kinds of excess. He says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. If we have a choice, what are we going to be filled with, wine or with the Spirit? I think that's an obvious choice. So if we get to that place where that is, is starting to occur, then we're obviously we're crossing that line. But, but the second point I want, to pay, I want to make, and I think it's probably even more important then the first is that the Bible has a lot to say about not stumbling other people, not hurting our brothers and sisters. Paul said this in Romans chapter 14. He said, It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. So to do something in front of somebody... There are a lot of people in this world, I have to say this, and, and again, this is not the place for a whole study about you know, alcohol and that sort of thing, but, but I think just to touch upon these two ideas are important. There are a lot of people who have very severe problems with alcohol. And for us to just ignore that and, and say, well, listen, I've got all the freedom in the world to do whatever I want to do with this, and I, and I can handle it, and I'm not going to get drunk, and I'm not going to be bothered by it. But there may be a brother or sister that has a very severe problem with it, and you now saying, well, I've got all the freedom to do this I can, and they say, well, so-and-so does it. I can do it. And we stumble them. Is that, is that the right thing to do? The way is the way of love. What's the loving thing to do? Is to keep it between yourself. Don't do something in front of somebody that might stumble them. I made a decision long ago that I would not drink, though I knew I could if I wanted to, because I, uh, being an, an example, would not want to stumble anyone to say, well, pastor's drinking, so I can drink, when, you know, you might have a very serious problem with it. I think about it, too. My father was an alcoholic as well, and, and perhaps I could become an alcoholic as well. I don't know if I believe the genetic uh, argument for it, but I think there's certainly a social and a, and a passing of, of, you know, example in that. Paul said these words, 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll move on. He says, everything is permissible for me. It's okay. But not everything is beneficial. He says, everything is per permissible for me. He says it twice. But I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. That's an important verse. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. So, getting back to the story, he he called the bridegroom aside and he says these words. He says, you have saved the best till now. He says, not usually done this way. You saved the best till now. I, you know, I don't know about you do this, and, but um, I know 
I know the kids do this. They save the best till last. You know, you got to eat, you know, your whole plate. Your, parent make, your parents make you eat it all, right? And so you eat the vegetables first because you want to get that out of the way because, you know, I really don't want to eat that stuff. And you save whatever it is, the best till last, right? That's kind of what he's saying here. But you and I, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come, and, and the best is to be face-to-face with him in heaven forever and ever because of what he did for us on the cross. Finally, verse 11, he said this. The first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. The first of his miraculous signs. Notice it wasn't just a miracle for miracle's sake, but it was a sign. And this this sign was to reveal his glory, to reveal who he is, to show and to demonstrate who he is. Why? The key verse of the book of John, that we might believe. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. By believing, you might have life in his name. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? It says on the third day, this took place. He revealed his glory. We think about it. There's another third day written about in the Bible too, isn't it? What happened on that third day? rose from the dead and revealed his glory about who he is. It says here, the disciples, they put their faith in him. I think they believed in him to some degree, but they even believed in him more because of his work in their lives. Someone pointed this out. It was a miracle of conversion, the converting of water to wine. And, and there's still that miracle of conversion in our lives today where he changes us from the inside out. That's miraculous. And that is a miraculous sign as well for those around us when they see us changed, when they see us different, when they see something happening in our lives, they see and they go, well, that's, wow, you know, maybe there is a God. Maybe, maybe uh, they'll come to you and say, you know, I don't know what you have, but, but I want what you have. I want what, what is evident in your life. So, radical, huh? Just the first 11 verses of chapter 2. The, the summing up the points here, number one, invite him. Invite him into our lives and our homes and our marriages. Number two, do whatever he tells you. And number three, put our faith in him, trust in him, believe in him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Your son, Jesus, incredible, wonderful, son of God, our Savior, our Lord. How he came to that day, to that wedding, and he blessed them, and he showed his glory that day. And his disciples, they put their faith in him, they trusted him. We need you in our lives Jesus, we need you in our homes. We need you in our 
marriages. We invite you, we ask you to come. Be the Lord of our lives, the Lord of our homes, the Lord of our marriages. Show us, Lord, show us more of who you are, that we might trust you even more. And Jesus, we, I want to take a moment as we conclude, Lord, for any who need, need a Savior. Maybe that's you. You've never invited him in. He, he won't come in unless you invite him in, to invite him into your life, into your heart, and say, Jesus, please, come into my life. I'm lost. I am empty. Talk about empty. I'm empty. Please come in and, and fill my life. Fill me, save me, change me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And let's all stand and sing together, shall we?